agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. We're happy to have the opportunity to talk today with Isaac Saul, a political reporter who definitely shares our belief here on the show that information bubbles are a serious problem. And, you know, instead of just kind of saying, oh, well, this is a horrible thing and encouraging people to try and somehow break out of their partisan bubbles, he decided to do something about it. And again, it sounds like a familiar story to Paul Sky's listeners, right? So that's why he's on, because I'm betting that if you're a fan of this podcast, and if you're not hate listening, you are, uh, you'll really appreciate Isaac's work, which we're going to be talking about, along, I think, with more generally some thoughts about problems in modern media. All right, Isaac Saul, welcome to the show. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So I thought we'd start with, you know, you. Uh, can you talk a little bit about who you are and what your background in political media is? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I, I grew up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which I think is kind of, you know, my, my origin story. I, I reference it a lot in my work. Bucks County for a long time was a bellwether county in the presidential election. Pennsylvania is obviously a really important state on the map. And Bucks County was basically split 50-50 between Democrats and Republicans, or maybe 40-40 with you know, the 15-20% independents in the middle when I was growing up. It today is a little bit more blue than it used to be. And, you know, this was really informative for me. I grew up around a lot of people with different and warring political views. And I went to college and was a sports reporter at the school paper at the University of Pittsburgh, which is another really kind of blue collar ideologically mixed urban suburban area in Pittsburgh um, in Pennsylvania too. And when I got out of college, I got my first job ever at the Huffington Post, which has basically made a bunch of people tag me as a liberal for the rest of my life. Um, unfortunately, even though, you know, what I always tell people is I didn't take a job at the Huffington Post because I was a, a diehard liberal. I took the job there because they offered me a job, which is really <laughs> yeah. hard to get in uh, in journalism when you're fresh out of school with an English writing degree. So, um, you know, that those two things, I think, were really formative for me, this sort of childhood where I grew up around a lot of people and have dear friends across the political spectrum. And then my first experience in the media world being at an outlet that had a really and, and deservedly um, partisan rep reputation. So basically, when I started writing, it didn't really matter what I was writing about. The fact that it was published in the Huffington Post meant you know, about half the country wouldn't take it seriously, no matter what I said. And when I left the Huffington Post, I, I sort of just started seeing that everywhere I went. Um, my first job after that was a, a media company called A Plus that was founded by Ashton Kutcher. And we were totally new, completely fresh slate. And even though I was publishing my work there, people would look me up or Google me and they'd see that my previous job was at the Huffington Post and it would just be like immediate a tag on me. Um, and throughout my career, as I started freelancing in other places, you know, some conservative news outlets didn't matter, whatever. I just kept seeing running into this problem that, you know, if I published something that was in independent journal review, which is a conservative media outlet, 
liberals wouldn't take it seriously. And so I kind of came to this conclusion that I needed to create something where people could get their news under one roof in the same place. And that was sort of the, the genesis for Tangle. So since that has always been your, I guess it's kind of it hung around your neck. You worked into having a post for so long. I guess I'm going to ask you, here's your chance to, to set yourself free. What's your actual ideological background? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. Um, I would say like, you know, when I was, I'm, I'm 30 now. So, um, you know, I was very, very politically involved when I was in high school and, and early college. And I think like a lot of people in that era, I was kind of like a populist Obama supporter. I thought he was, you know, the the truth. And um, and then I sort of witnessed his presidency and kind of had a wake up call about the realities of politics and what gets done and the difference between, you know, what people campaign on and what they actually do and and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I. I'd like to say in 2016 that I was one of the few political journalists and pundits out there who really saw Trump coming and and recognized kind of the angst that he was speaking to. And I think, um, you know, I had a lot of problems with him as a person and as a president, but uh, I, I did recognize that he was sort of hitting a lot of notes that were familiar and appealing to me and other people I grew up with about sort of the corruption in Washington, D.C., and the failure to just sort of fill the gaps and and do things for the working class American that had been promised for many years and never really done. And I think what I sort of drew from all that is that, you know, and I swear this is not a cop out. I just I often say, like, I am politically incongruent. You know, I'm a I'm an independent. I I think I probably am like a, a hair left of center in the total aggregate of all the things that are out there in the world. Um, but you know, that's also true of most America based on polling. I think like today's American populist, the median is, is right about left of center. Uh, and so, you know, I don't know, I, I don't, I don't like saying I'm, I'm liberal or conservative or Republican or Democrat. I typically say, you know, ask me about the issue and I can give you my thoughts on what the specific thing is we're talking about, which is something I talk about in Tangle a lot. You know, I get I get accused of being a conservative, a closet conservative or a closet liberal in the newsletter basically every day based on whatever the topic is, because sometimes my views kind of align more with the mainstream Republican side and sometimes more with the mainstream Democratic side. So um, it's hard for me to say, you know, and I, and I would add to just to, to wrap that up is most of Americans now, you know, the majority of Americans are identifying as independence, or I shouldn't say the majority, a plurality of Americans are identifying as independents. I think the last Gallup poll I saw was something like 40% independent and then, you know, 25 to 30% Democrat or Republican. So, uh, you know, I think I, I fit in in a place a lot of Americans do right now, which is they don't feel particularly strong loyalty to either party at the moment. I won't do this to you, but I will say that when anybody says that, I always want to scratch deeper under the surface as a political scientist and say, but are you really? Uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, for instance, you, you bring that poll up and, you know, we, we know that it, when you take a look and you ask some questions that those independents a lot of times is because they don't want to say it, but they'll actually behave in similar ways to their other potential partisans. But I'll save that. Uh, anyway, I, <laughs> no, if we had more point. time, we could just it, sit here and, you know, we it's a really valid point. I think there's, you know, you, you might know better than I do, but I, I think the last thing I saw was something on the order of like 
six to 8% of people are like really, truly independent where they're, you know, swapping what party they're voting for in election after election. So that's a totally fair criticism of that position. I guess I would just, I would just say I'm very skeptical of both of the major political parties. And, you know, I think my views tend to be a little bit more, are, are definitely liberal on, on a lot of social issues, but there are a lot of things about, you know, the politics of the left that I really don't like. And there are a lot of things about, um, you know, the, the sort of values of conservatives that I find appealing of, you know, the kind of hard work and liberty and constitutionality and individualism and that, that kind of stuff um, that, that I think is appealing to me sometimes too. So it's just, yeah, it's hard to say, I guess. It, it, it sounds Trey like Isaac is describing me to us, but <laughs> so <laughs> let, let me, uh, before we get into the specifics of Tangle, uh, I, I, something you've, you've mentioned about Obama presidency. It sounds to me like you're sort of a, a disillusioned Obama's, person and and you know you have kind of a unique perspective there are a lot of that that's a big group certainly but you kind of were able to be in the the belly of the media beast as it were for two very different presidencies that i think you could argue in some ways the media approached very differently and maybe for some good reasons and maybe not and and i'm wondering what's your take on you know seeing the media and not just seeing the media but being part of that process covering those two presidencies were there were there any things that, that you noticed that just seemed like incredibly from your insider perspective wrong or wrong-headed or anything that really sort of surprised you that maybe people who don't work in media wouldn't fully appreciate i mean i i would say that the press generally gets a lot of flack for their coverage of trump now um, from, you know, anybody who voted for Trump, they say that, you know, the media was so unfair to him and they were so adversarial and they hated him and all these things. And I think there's some truth to that. But what I like to say is that, you know, the way the media treated Trump and the posture the media had toward Trump is how the media is supposed to be postured toward a president and a government. That is their job, in my opinion. And I actually didn't think there was a lot wrong with how the press treated Trump, except for the fact that they didn't treat other presidents that way. I mean, that was the real fundamental issue is that it was sort of kid gloves with past presidents or recent presidents that had more of the ideological mix and worldview that most journalists have, which I think is totally true. But yeah, I mean, you know, Obama was a celebrity. I think he had a celebrity status. I think um, he was viewed by a lot of people in the media as somebody who was a a friendly, somebody who came from similar backgrounds as them, sort of like working class, but made it to the kind of like higher institutions, came from a very educated background, and then you know spoke the word I think of the of the working class American in a lot of ways but um, also didn't act on a lot of the things that he said he was going to act on. And, you know, by the way, did not treat the press very well. I mean, gave plenty of plaudits and spoke a lot nicer about them in the public facing sphere than a Donald Trump did, but, you know, was investigating journalists and infringing on all sorts of the rights of the media and the press during his time in office. And I, I just, you know, I, I think there was a, um, yeah, familiarity with who he was and what he represented that 
sort of brought the guard down of a lot of the media. Um, I think he was like, you know, subjectively to me was a, a better person than Donald Trump in terms of just like being a decent human being who wasn't intentionally trying to provoke people. But he, he also, you know, a lot of the things that he did in office were only really deeply criticized in the years after um, he left in, in the first few years of the Trump presidency, notably. And those failures were all kind of apparent and, and readily available, I think, at the time. So, you know, I, I don't think Donald Trump got a, a bad hand from the media in the sense that I think the way they treated him is the kind of adversarial way the press should treat a president. But I think it exposed some of the media's bias, the quote unquote media. I mean, it's, a, it's hard to talk about as a monolith, but um, exposed a lot of the D.C. journalists bias because it showed that they were really capable of that kind of adversarial reporting and posture, but hadn't had it in the eight years prior. I just got a quick question for you on that front, since you were in, as Mike put in a second ago, in the belly of the beast at the time of the Obama presidency. You know, as a scholar of the presidency, one of the things that we had noted about Obama was when he made the change from the weekly compilation of presidential documents to the daily. And a lot of the take in the scholarly world was that was an attempt to make journalists and scholars job harder. Did that actually take place? I've, I've always wanted to ask somebody who was there during that transition, or was that just maybe, uh, you know, a, a scholar's outside position that didn't have much foundation in truth? Uh, I don't I don't know that it made the job that much harder in my personal experience or opinion. But um, yeah, I'm not really sure. I'd be curious. I mean, are there are there journalists out there who say that? Yeah, I mean, then again, that's been a few years ago. But yes, that was one of the things that I had uh, had studied when I was, uh, well, as a matter of fact, when I was much younger. But anyway, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, honestly, I haven't read much about that. I certainly, you know, I didn't notice that as a reporter who was covering the administration. But um, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I suppose that's a, there's, I, I wonder how much intent was behind that. Um, I, I guess I haven't thought about it or, or written or read about it enough to say. You just sparked my mind when you started talking about kind of some of the ways that, you know, his presidency wasn't always as peachy as it was, as you might have thought in terms of how he was treating press. Uh, so I, I just just ran through my mind. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, you you talk about uh, ideology and, and bias, but it also in in your remarks and talking about uh, the media's coverage of Obama versus Trump, it also occurs to me, at least from what I heard, is sort of a there's a cultural issue as well. There's a uh, a while back, I think of Chris Rock said something to the effect of, you know, Obama's he's not actually cool, but he was cool for a politician, and uh, which is a rare thing, right? And no one really would say that of Donald Trump. A cool wouldn't be the word you'd use. And and it seems to me that as journalists or someone who is a journalist, I would think that in some ways, somebody that you just sort of identify with culturally and kind of are rooting for culturally, that's the sort of person that's got to be very tempting, even unconsciously, to find yourself writing copy that that even, like I said, subconsciously is sort of much more positive than somebody who say, you know, you just feel culturally and ideologically in every other way opposed to. I, I got to think that makes the job a lot harder. Yeah, I totally. I mean, I, I I think you I think two things sort of happen when you're in that position. One is 
the just the simple benefit of the doubt, you know, the the knee jerk reaction to a breaking story, your first instinct about where you're going to go on a story, or whether you're believing, you know, the kind of the state's line about why something happened or what's going on. All of that, I think, gets, you know, some some external pressure from those feelings that you have about a candidate. Uh, and then the second thing is just, you know, the the level to which you are curious or inquisitive about sort of that first layer, which, you know, I think that was one of the issues in the Obama presidency was that there was, um, you know, there was not a not a proper inquisitive digging nature to just what we were being told by the Obama government and the Obama administration and the people in his cabinet and his press secretary. I mean, I, I very vividly remember the first couple of weeks of Sean Spicer's tenure as press secretary, which of course, you know, he, he did Poor some guy. pretty ridiculous <laughs> yeah. things. Yeah. I mean, he did some pretty ridiculous things and he was clearly being you know, under under a great deal of pressure to to lie about absurd stuff like the inauguration crowd size or whatever. Um, but I mean, there were like hundreds of thousands of people watching those pressers and so many journalists who were just expressing such a deep skepticism about everything that was coming out of his mouth, which I thought was really great. But it was just like so noticeable that this divide, which, you know, nothing against any president, I mean, press secretaries are paid to smooth over the truth and make it sound as palatable as possible. That's their job. And all of Obama's press secretaries did that too, but there just wasn't the same sort of like combativeness towards him. Um, And I will just put an asterisk on all of that to just say that, you know, one thing I do talk about with media bias and, you know, the fact that we know from polling and stuff that a lot of journalists at major news outlets, traditional news outlets like the Washington Post, New York Times, whatever, typically vote for Democrats, is that just because somebody votes Democratic does not mean that they're going to have a bias for them. I think from being inside and seeing that world and working with certain editors and freelancers and stuff whose work I know or whose politics I know are left-leaning, sometimes the way that that bias manifests itself is that they're actually a lot more critical of Democratic politicians because they like they want them to be better than they are, or because they can so clearly see the failures of their policies. So I just like want to caution not to, you know, broad brush that either way that, you know, for, for a lot of the writers who were sort of openly positive about Obama and then became disillusioned by his presidency, they are now like the biggest critics of the left in the press that you see because, you know, they went from sort of trusting and believing in him to kind of feeling like they were violated by how he handled himself and their trust was broken and all these things. And, uh, you know, a lot of reporters of the New York Times, I'm sure have left-leaning biases or whatever, but they also do the hardest hitting reporting on any administration. Um, you know, like the Hillary Clinton email story came from the New York Times, you know, basically sank her shot at the presidency. And, uh, you know, that's just like, that's a product of people being extra critical about politicians, even when they may have some positive feelings towards them. So, you know, it's a little bit more complex than I think people give it credit for being. Yeah, as a matter of fact, when you talk about that, the first thing I was I was thinking about, I don't know if you've read it, it's about, oh my goodness, uh, what, tw- correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's 20, 
two years old now, uh, uh, Mike, uh, bias by uh, uh, Bernard Goldberg, uh, where he, he he tries to talk about that a little bit. I, I heard some of that in there, Isaac, but I don't want to linger on that because I also want to talk about uh, your, about Tangle. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I write a politics newsletter. We basically summarize an argument every day. So obviously there's a ton of debate happening across the political spectrum on domestic issues, which is typically where we focus, but we do some international stuff too. When, you know, it really calls for it, like the war that's happening in Ukraine Mm -hmm. right now, we've covered a lot, Um, but we try and isolate a single issue every day. And we sort of give you like a summary about what the issue is, the, you know, the basic outline of the story, the facts, the kind of balanced take on what both sides are saying. And then we give you explicitly um, three arguments from the right and three arguments from the left. And then I give you my take. So we, we go out and scour the internet and podcasts and television, and we try and find like three really good, strong arguments from each side that sort of speak to each other. And then I offer my own position or thoughts about the arguments or actually take a side on um, what the debate is. So for instance, you know, we're recording this on Monday, March 21st, and today we covered uh, whether Democrats should give a gas tax holiday to try and get the price of gasoline down. So there's a lot of arguments on the left. The left is actually pretty divided on it. Um, And then some arguments from the right. And that's basically the format of the newsletter every day. And then I answer a reader question and, you know, we have a fun numbers section and stuff like that. And then at the end, I always finish every newsletter with just like a feel good, happy news story, because I think we all need a little bit more of that (laughs) given the the state of doom scrolling in our country. yeah, and so it's a it's a way for people to from across the political spectrum, in my opinion, to get out of their bubble. Um, that is the real impetus for it. It's that we are all living in curated bubbles where we are being having our views reinforced by the the news around us, and this is a way for people to really tangibly puncture that bubble and make sure that they are getting exposed to arguments and views that they might not like or agree with. And I'm really proud to say that we have a really diverse readership. I mean, I have like diehard Trump supporting Republicans who write into me every day and sometimes hate me and sometimes love me and love my work and whatever. And we have diehard, you know, lefty socialists readers who think the Democratic Party's like totally corrupt and they only trust Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And we've got everybody in between. Um, and it's really cool. I think it's it's becoming a really strong community of people that are interested in, you know, engaging the other side, which which not enough Americans are doing right now. You already started to answer this question uh, uh, as you were talking about kind of how you got to that story. You know, for the politics guys, we're looking at a week. So, you know, we're looking at trying to find like the four, the six most important stories in the show. That's going to be hard doing that every day. How is it like, so what, what do you do and how many other people in the room for you guys to say, okay, this, today's story is because it feels like that would be, that could be some days that's really easy, but I could, I can imagine days where that's tough. Like, how do you get to that? Yeah, it is really hard. So um, I will say on that topic, I am actually a little bit of a tyrant. (laughs) Uh, I basically make that decision myself um, because I think story selection is in and of itself an act of bias. And 
I get really worried about taking other people's input on what direction to go because I know the politics of like some of the other people on staff who help out and things like that. And um, I feel like I have over, it, it has taken me a very long time, but I have done a really good job of curating some of the different social media bubbles that I exist on and the kind of news that I'm reading every morning and the home pages that I'm checking that one of the things that I'm really, really good at is having a pulse on what both sides are talking about. And I try not to just, you know, cover what the New York times editorial boards writing about, because if I did that, just like they are picking sometimes arguments that they know they can win. And so it would just end up being a bunch of issues that liberals are more interested in. Um, so like for instance, tomorrow, we're going to cover the Hunter Biden laptop story and some of the, the latest commentary around that because the New York Times published this piece that basically confirmed the contents of the laptop were real and, you know, the investigation is real and all this stuff. And, um, you know, I know that if I were reading opinion pieces in the New York Times or opinion pieces in the Washington Post or Slate or whatever, um, that story wouldn't be popping up as much. And again, you know, just sidebar talking about that bias stuff. The New York Times did just publish this story, so kudos to them. I mean, they they are reporting it out. I think it's a little late, but um, they're covering it. And uh, you know, so that's like the that's that's one of the very few things that I really only try and and do on my own because I I, I have a lot of strengths and weaknesses, but that I feel like is one of my strengths is sort of knowing that that's a story that'll attract interest. Um, from my more conservative audience and will obviously pique the interest of people on the left, though, I'm certain tomorrow I'm going to get 100 emails from people telling me, like, I can't believe you're wasting your time covering this and yada, yada, yada. Um, but I do think it's an, an important story. Yeah, you know, it, the, more, the more you talk about Tangle, a few years ago, I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could take the politics guys and the, the whole ethos and put it in the print. Now I realize we don't have to do that because this is clearly what you what you are doing. Uh, it's just the more the more I think about it. But I, I wanted to talk a little bit about your. You mentioned a number of sources in that, and and Trey asked a question about kind of your your process. And and I know for me, I have a, a wide range of sources that I look at, but but I kind of have a home base. I mean, sort of for me, I I, I start with the Washington Post. It used to be the New York Times, but they went too far left for me in in a lot of ways with their quote unquote news analysis pieces and so forth. But, but I mean, there are some other things like the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg and so forth. But but I'm curious about, you know, what your kind of home bases are and if there are any sources that you find yourself, even even though you, you know, you look very broadly, are there any sources that on the both the left and the right you find yourself coming back to with just a lot of frequency? Definitely. I mean, I so so sort of because of what I said at the top, even though I'm reluctant to sort of like concede to any, uh, I guess, like political ideology, I do think, um, you know, in the grand scheme of things, my politics are probably a little bit left of center. So I'm very intentional about reading the Wall Street Journal first every morning, um, because I know that they are like, you know, more, a little bit more to the right, even in just their news um, their straight news sections. I think their story selection is like has a stronger kind of center, center right slant than the Washington Post or the New York Times. Uh, I believe they are still the three best papers in the country. Um, it's funny you mentioned the New York Times analysis stuff. I actually I wrote a whole newsletter about media bias and um, 
I I did dedicated an entire section to like the mirage of news analysis and how a bunch of media companies have basically just cloaked opinion pieces by calling them analysis and making them seem like they're high minded when they're really just like your classic opinion hackery. Um, so I think that's a good, a strong observation. Uh, but yeah, so I, I read the Wall Street Journal. I read the New York Times. I read the Washington Post, typically in that order in the morning. I think they are still the three papers that are driving most of the news because they have you know hundreds of journalists in each newsroom and a lot of other places, a lot of their outlets are sort of repurposing the content that they come up with. Um, and then I go to Fox News typically just to give like a little balance. And I think like at that point, those once I've like scoured all four of those homepages, clicked around on a couple of opinion pieces, read the politics section, I'm like in a place where I understand pretty strongly what some of like the dominant stories are that are out there. And then I'll really go, you know, searching individual websites for pieces. You know, if it's like a piece on immigration, I know that, you know, Breitbart or the Federalist or something like that is going to have something like a really strong right wing take about this topic. And I can get a, a quick pulse check on where they are and what they're saying and what sort of like, that kind of Trump right attitude. I think, uh, you know, there are some newer digital outlets like um, American Greatness and Spectator. I guess Spectator has been around for a while that are both sort of like adopting this more sort of like intellectual Trumpism, which I think is a really important trend that's happening on the right right now. And, and they're getting a lot more um, support and traffic and winning over a lot of more traditional conservatives with their writing and their work. And then, uh, yeah, I have a Google doc probably of about, I don't know, 50 or 60 sources on the right and the left that I just consult every morning and go back to, um, most of the stuff I do or most of the stuff that I'm consuming is written content. Um, I, I, I like to say, you know, you should read your news and, and watch your sports. Um, I don't think television news is really a very good thing for anybody. Uh, Tucker Carlson transcribes a lot of his, you know, nightly hits. So um, if he's done something or said something that's making a bunch of waves and is he's making a compelling point, I might include some of that. I listen to some conservative and some liberal podcasts, but, you know, generally that's not the kind of stuff I'm going to cite in the newsletter. That's more just like a way for me to, to get a little bit of the temperature check. But yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I am, I'm a, a news junkie. So, um, you know, it's like I get up from my computer and I'm pressing play on a podcast and I'm listening to when I walk to the bathroom. So I'm just like constantly trying to to take in stuff and, and see what kind of opinions are out there. Yeah, I wanted to kind of follow up on that to point out to listeners that this is I mean, this takes just a ridiculous amount of work to do this sort of thing, especially in a thoughtful way. And, you know, and Trey and I do this also to an extent. And the thing that at least I've noticed is how. The same story can be, I mean, just in a straight news format can feel so different when you mention like the journal, even though they may cover the same stories as say the the Times or the Post, the feel of it is just very different. And if you sometimes you can kind of break it apart if you really want to, and there's an adjective here or something like that. But but it's definitely it, it moves you in a certain direction. And I don't think a lot of people really necessarily appreciate that who don't kind of have that diversity of, of view, don't seek out that diversity of views. 
Yeah, I, uh, I, I mean, a hundred percent. You are you're you're preaching my language right now. Um, you know, I one of the examples that I gave in that piece that I wrote about media bias was a I, I literally did a side by side breakdown of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, both covering the Canadian trucker protest. Um, and, you know, I, I prefaced it by saying, like, listen, this is a straight news hit in The New York Times, a straight news hit in The Wall Street Journal. These are, in our industry, the best reporters, the best editors, the best teams you can find in the world. They're the highest paid people working at the most prestigious newspapers there are. And they're supposed to be as objective and straight down the middle as possible. And yet you can read each of their you know, coverage of this same exact piece side by side. And you immediately, I mean, from the very first sentence, you see the differences. Um, I actually brought it up. I had it, had it open in front of me on this, on my computer right now. And so I could give you like a, a concrete example of this, but, um, you know, in, in news, there's sort of the lead, which is like the first sentence or two. And then there's a nut graph of a story, which is supposed to be like, you know, the couple of sentences that kind of explain the context of the story. So the nut graph in the New York Times was this. I'll read it to you. It says, Mr. Trudeau, who is isolating after testing positive for coronavirus last week, has sought to downplay the scope and influence of the protesters, calling them a small fringe minority and lashing out at them for desecrating war memorials, wielding Nazi symbols, spreading disinformation and stealing food from the homeless during protests in Ottawa. So that is like the second paragraph in a story the New York Times did about what was happening in Ottawa with this Canadian trucker protest. This is the nut graph in the Wall Street Journal. Some of the vehicles are adorned with Canadian flags along the signs and slogans demanding their rights under the country's constitution be restored. Among them, the right to decline to get vaccinated for COVID-19 and that rules be abolished requiring vaccination to either work, travel, or eat at the local pub. The convoy organized under the Freedom Convoy 2020. 2022 banner has clogged up traffic in the city's core, forced some businesses to shut their doors and disrupted residents' daily lives. Tens of thousands of supporters have gathered near the country's parliament on consecutive weekends to show their support. So just <laughs> wow, call out like, I mean, this is like, you know, the New York Times, we have small fringe minority desecrating war memorials, wielding Nazi symbols, spreading disinformation, stealing food from the homeless. The Wall Street Journal, we have Canadian flags, slogans demanding their rights under the country's constitution be restored, Freedom Convoy 2022, tens of thousands of supporters gathering near the country's parliament for consecutive weekends to show their support. I mean, that is like night and day. And those are the exact same pieces on the exact same story from, you know, the two most prominent papers in the country. These are not people who are crazy ideologues who are like desperately trying to push their their far right, far left, uh, you know, view of the world. And so that's that's, I think, what makes it even more amazing. Yeah, totally. Like I, I said that in the piece is just, you know, I'm not trying to put these people like these are these reporters are better than me. They are objectively they have like achieved higher, you know, career accomplishments than I have. But it, everybody has some level of subjectivity. And, you know, whether it's what quote you decide to lead with or how the editors craft a story, I mean, again, this is this is a straight news hit. It's not a it's not an opinion piece. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's really evident from just reading those two things that 
you need to be going to more than one source or reading Tangle um, in order to, 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 to sort of pierce that bubble that you're living in. Otherwise, you'll never get this other side of it. We almost kind of wanted to tease a little bit, but I mean, there's a seriousness here too that, right? Like, if, if you really want to break out of your bubble, you gotta, you should subscribe to Tangle and the Politics Guys and do that right now, right? You know, uh, but you know, the, the other part of what you bring up here is, is so, and I love that juxtaposition. I need, I'm gonna have to use that in my class, as a matter of fact, um, because, you know, we, we've studied this for a long time. The, the problem is, is you have these kind of limited amount of spaces, a limited amount of attention. Uh, and when you do that, you end up getting uh, biases, even when you don't intend to have biases. But then today, we also interact on social media, which is adapting to the things that we click and we and we engage in. Right. So you you, know, you look at this uh, TikTok video uh, a couple of times more than that one, and then you start moving what you see thereafter uh, to try to get that attention. And so, you know. Besides obviously doing things like, hey, hang out with the politics guys, hang out with Tangled, what are ways you think individuals can begin to break out of their ideological bubbles? And, and, and are you, I mean, you must on some level be hopeful that that can happen or you wouldn't have started Tangled. But what does that look like and how, how can somebody do that? Yeah, it's a really great question. I mean, I, I, I basically what I like to tell people is, you know, it's not... I don't, I don't want the news to be this like horrible anxiety, anger inducing thing. I think we have enough of that in America, but I do think that if you are scrolling through your Twitter or your Instagram, or, you know, you're reading whatever newsletters you're subscribed to and, and you're never having your mind made up or your, your views challenged at all then you're doing something wrong. I mean, the way that you are consuming news is wrong. Um, I, I often ask people uh, when I have conversations with friends and stuff in person and they sort of like prod me about something, I'll say like, you know, when was the last time you changed your mind about something? <laughs> Seriously. Like no, when was the last time you changed your mind about a political issue? And then they're like, they can't really come up with an example. And I'm like, do you know anybody? Like, do you have a single friend who you think is right about everything? Like, no, of course not. Nobody is. And I'm like, okay, well then like, how are you possibly right and not changing your mind about anything? Like you should be changing your mind every day, every week, at least, you know, and it's not flip-flopping. It's like it, you, you're, if, if you can concede that nobody's right about everything, then you are almost definitely not right about everything. Then like your views and perspectives should be changing over time as you encounter new arguments and different information. And if they're not changing, then you're probably not being exposed to those arguments or that information. And, you know, I literally, I mean, I can maybe count on one hand the number of times somebody could actually tell me an instance in like the last five years they changed their mind about an issue because a lot of people don't you know a lot of people just live in that bubble so um i think being very inquisitive with yourself about why you believe what you believe and and what those views are is like a really important first step and um you know i like to say read about one topic if you want enough times or for a long enough period of time that you at least change your mind about like one facet of the issue. You know, if you can do that about something that you say you really care about or interested in. Um, I just did this recently with, uh, you know, I'm one of the things that I'm very left on and worried about is climate change. And uh, I just read a ton and ton and ton and just interviewed this energy expert for my podcast last week about renewable energy and 
basically have have had my position moved on sort of the the possibility that the technology we have now is actually good enough to you know turn the switch off and go renewables and basically got convinced by this person I interviewed that um you know a lot of the renewable energies I'm really excited about aren't as clean as I think they are there's like a huge amount of um waste and danger and it's different than air pollutants but it's still a certain kind of environmental destruction and you know that's an issue i can say like in the last week that my views moved on a little bit or were moderated in some form and i think that's just like a really important process for people to to go through and it's a great question to ask and I, when you mentioned it i i, I laughed because I, I am not making this up yesterday i was cleaning the basement and that that exact question occurred to me because i said to myself i have to ask jay that question and i said wait i have to ask myself that question too and and i think if, if people the single most important maybe question people can ask the, themselves is exactly that question that you pose when's the last time you've changed your mind about something and kind of that 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 secondary question well you know who do you know anyone who's right about everything all the time so i i just really wanted to emphasize the the importance of that and what a great question. What a great way that is to kind of think about your own thinking, which is, can be a really tricky thing to do. Um, but I also wanted to, Trey mentioned social media, and it seems to me, I think it seems to a lot of people that it's almost in the economic interest of social media to not encourage people to change their minds or to do the kind of hard cognitive work about questioning their own beliefs. And so I'm wondering, do you see anything sort of in the economic interests of these media organizations that, well, I mean, aside from like the politics guys in Tangle, where this is our brand, that would, that would cause them maybe to try to move toward things that in a serious way, try to challenge people's views as opposed to, you know, New York times has the, has sort of a, a couple of token conservative columnists, but that's not really moving the needle. And so do you think that the way the economic setup of media can encourage this or is it just kind of really always going to be pushing against this? It's really tough. I mean, I, I think at this juncture, most of the momentum is, is pushing against it. I mean, unfortunately, I think that's kind of one of the struggles that, um, that the media industry is facing. When I started Tangle, I was very intentional about being ad free. Um, I also don't have any investors we're 100% independent, subscriber-supported. 80% of our content is free. We only paywall one story a week on Fridays. Um, and these were all like lessons that I gleaned from my experience, which was that you know if you paywall really quality content, then the people who need to see it most uh, aren't going to see it. A, B, uh, if you have ads because you're giving everything away for free then you're incentivized always to get as much traffic as possible, which makes you want to be sensational and bombastic and piss people off and get rage clicks or whatever. Um, and three, if you have investors, they're going to care a ton about the editorial direction of you know your product. And they're not going to let you be independent no matter what they say. It's their money and they're going to want their money back. And um, that that just always happens. And in, in every you know experienced newsroom that I've seen, there's sort of a facade of like the separation between the editorial and the business side. Some places do it really well, other places do it less well, but nobody is is perfect at that. Um, so, you know, I, I think there's a lot of really difficult things. For me, the obvious one, like the obvious counterpoint, I guess, to all of that is, 
you know, you could double your audience. I mean, if the New York Times were willing to publish more conservative authors, they would get a lot more conservative readers. And right now, most conservatives I know refuse to read the New York Times because they would never want to give them, you know, a hundred bucks a year or whatever it costs to subscribe because they don't want to support them because they think they're, you know, liberal ideologues. So um, I think that's, that's the number one thing. But when it comes to, you know, making money off ads and stuff like that, I mean, unfortunately, there is a reason all of these news outlets act the way that they act. And it's because it's a really strong economic model. Um, you know, Fox News is the biggest and baddest news organization in the world on TV because, you know, they know how to they know how to turn a dollar. They know how to bring in advertisers and viewers. And they do it by kind of like giving the red meat to their audience that they want. And and it really works. And CNN and MSNBC are kind of copying their model now with just, you know, nonstop anti-Trump content because they know that it works. And it, and it did work really well when Trump was president. So, um, you know, I'm I'm less hopeful about how that changes in the near term. I think somebody smarter than me is probably going to have to figure out you know, what kind of model these news organizations could thrive under by by being a bit more, um, you know, diverse in, in who they're hiring and the stories they're covering. Uh, and and I, I will also, I do also just want to say again, I, all this stuff is really nuanced. And like my asterisk on that would be, you know, I am also seeing right now this whole new crop of people that are, you know, it's just like the kind of heterodox, anti-mainstream, news stuff popping up. Um, you know, I know some of the writers are on Substack. I started on Substack. I love Substack. I read it. I think it's a great company. Uh, but there, a lot of them are going there. They're they're sort of doing what I did. They started independent newsletters or they're just featured writers at some sort of like offbeat digital publication. Being like a heterodox thinker is also an ideology. We're witnessing that now. I think, you know, a lot of those people were the people sort of scoffing at the idea that Putin was going to invade Ukraine, you know, three months ago when all the experts were saying that was what was, was going to happen. And it's like, that is an ideology too, to try and be sort of anti the mainstream. So you have to be a little bit careful about, you know, the models that kind of incentivize that behavior too. But yeah, it's a it's a really tricky thing, and I don't I don't totally know the way out. I wish I could give a more optimistic answer, but um, you know what I'm doing is really hard to not make money off ads and not have investors. It took a lot of work and a lot of pain and a lot of my own money and investment and sweat equity in order to get to a point where we were kind of like a thriving, you know, successful, profitable media company. So yeah. I love how you're continuing to put the nuance in what you're saying, but you know, you talk about the heterodox there and, and part of what I hear here, and this may be, this is partly a bias of being a, a, a professor in, in, in your, in your, is his day job. And that is, is that we live in this environment of just, just so many choices. And I don't just mean news. I mean, we're talking about uh, people, human beings, attention, right? You know, the ability to flip on Hulu and Disney plus and all these things and be entertained in a variety of ways. And then it's just one subset of this. We have news, but then as you're mentioning here, there's this huge uh, number and possibility for news. Uh, and, but the ones that really win are not the ones that generally are maybe trying to make those 
complicated, nuanced statements like you're doing, because that's not always particularly exciting. It's, it, it's you know, is that going to pull me over from, you know, watching the most recent uh, Marvel movie or whatever? No, I mean, I love Marvel movies, don't get me wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but this idea is, is we're really expecting a lot of uh, uh, citizens, maybe even more today than we ever have. And so I'm kind of, I'm curious, you started to say, hey, in the short term, I'm not nearly as hopeful, but you know, maybe there are people smarter than me. But I mean, obviously you're not dumb because you, you've you created Tangle and you just said that it's profitable, right? Like you're, it, you know, it, it's your job. Uh, so, I mean, you're doing some pretty cool things. So I'm going to push you a little bit here and say, well, in this kind of high choice environment, what what is the future of diverse information, complicated information, as we move in it past that to the medium and long term in the United States? What do you think? Well, I will say, I mean, I guess th- this is sort of where my bubble comes into play a little bit. Um, you know, I tangle. I think as of this morning, we broke thirty three thousand subscribers on our mailing list. So, you know, I am I am interacting every day with 33,000 people who are interested in hearing views from across the political spectrum. So I am very hopeful in the sense that like I did that basically bootstrapping it with very little money going into growth. I mean, almost all of that was just word of mouth and asking people to forward emails and, you know, share Tangle on Twitter or whatever. And it was clear to me that there was this huge outpouring of interest in this kind of media that was embracing the nuance and commentary that was sort of like looking for the gray and the complexity and not the black and white. So I I will say in that sense, I am really hopeful. I also think, you know, there's a good argument that maybe the partisanship and and what we've sort of seen over the last 10 or 15 years hit hit rock bottom recently, maybe, you know, around January 6th, 2020. Um, I think like that was a big wake up call for a lot of people. Like, Oh God, we, we got to get off this train a little bit. Um, I don't know how long that wake up call is going to last or even has lasted, but you know, the Trump didn't bring partisanship to the United States. I mean, um, it was, it was getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse every year until that moment where I think a lot of people realized like, wow, I'm like very divorced from what a lot of people in the country are thinking and feeling. So there could be a bounce from that, I hope. And just like a, a general momentum of interest in people who are, you know, not just out there for clicks. I think the awareness of the social media bubble, the awareness of the kind of virality and sensationalism and bias in news is at an all-time high. I think that's really good. I think consumers are way, way, way more conscious of this than they were even 10 years ago, even two years ago. I think everybody is is really realizing that they have to be intentional in order to go out there and get their own views um, or, or go out there and get a diverse set of views. I'm, I'm really, really encouraged by the subscription model. I think a lot of people are starting to understand that, you know, you have to pay for quality content. Journalists need to make money. News outlets need to make money, support your local newspapers, you know, give money to the, the news outlets that you trust in and believe in and think are doing really good work. I think that's really important. So there are some there are some positive trends there that I'm particularly excited about. And I think, you know, I'm maybe I'm a little insecure about the bubble that I'm living in that I feel the need to be more pessimistic. If it was based just on what I'm interacting with, I would be thrilled because you know, I, I write emails to and from and get responses from readers every day who are 
really open-minded, even when they're super partisan, but they're, they're conscious of their own biases. And I think they're kind of humanizing the other side a bit more. And I'm seeing a lot of people, you know, kind of pop up in this space of wanting to add some nuance and some complexity. And so, you know, I think that is all that stuff is really good and encouraging. Um, you know, I, I think it's, I'm still not totally sure how we break free of kind of the, 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 the need that a lot of news outlets feel like they have to be a, a, you know, a balance, a counterbalance to somebody else, you know, MSNBC has to exist because Fox news exists or vice versa. I guess in that case, Fox news was sort of a response to what it viewed as institutional bias in cable news. Um, and, and I just don't know how we, how we totally break out of that cycle. I guess that's the part that I'm really, um, confounded by. Maybe there's going to be a, a really awesome independent centrist candidate for president who, who brings the country together or something. I have no idea. I think, you know, 2024 will be a really interesting year to get a pulse on how, you know, how partisan the country really is, whether we're still moving further away or whether the kind of Trump Biden combo is bringing some people maybe back to the center or, or breaking some of those, those kind of partisan habits. Uh, but yeah, it's going to, it's going to be really tricky. And I, I will say, I guess on the good side, is just, you know, the awareness of the social media bubbles and the economics of it and things like that are, it seems to be really high right now. I think uh, readers and consumers and listeners are becoming a lot more conscious of the content that they're taking in. So in that sense, that's a, that's a plus, I guess. Well, we, we always like to close on, on an optimistic note, and that is definitely an optimistic note. And before we do close, though, I want to say if if you like the politics sites, you absolutely need to subscribe to Tangle. We have, we're going to have a link in the show notes. Please do yourself a favor. Click on that link. You will be really glad you did. And also, uh, speaking of being really glad, I'm really glad that we had this chance to talk with you, Isaac. Thanks. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Yeah, thank you guys so much for the time. I appreciate it. And uh, obviously, you know, the the respect is mutual for what you guys are up to. I think these are, you know, really important conversations. And it's a, it's a good time to sort of join the fray of the people looking for some of the complexity and the nuance. So, you know, I definitely encourage your listeners to lean into that as much as they can. We hope you enjoyed this Politics Guys interview. And if you did, we'd really appreciate it if you could mention us on social media or however else you share things you like. It would also be great if you could rate and review us on your podcast app. If you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto, whatever, you want to share it with us, you can reach us a bunch of ways. Mail at politicsguys.com, as well as there's our supporters-exclusive Discord channel, and we're also on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to become a supporter of the show, you can find out more about that at patreon.com slash politicsguys or politicsguys.com slash support. And links to all that are always in our show notes. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new episode this coming weekend. We hope you'll join us.